uh, John Durig to come. And also I'd like to ask Pastor Ron and Cindy Price if you'd come, if you're able to. Sorry, Ron, I didn't see you were trying to stay warm there with the blanket. <laughs> if you all would, if you can, come here. Up here. So, um, I've had the privilege of knowing Ron now for, I guess, just about three years. And um, you've known them much longer than that. And so this is... Uh, This is a special day. It's a sad day, but it's also a happy day for you and uh, for our church. But I, I, I know of Ron and Cindy. I know that they don't desire or demand recognition. I, I know that he didn't, he didn't want a big thing. He didn't want to, uh, that's not his, his main concern, but we love him and, and the scripture teaches us not to withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in our power to do so. And so we, we didn't want to withhold this from you. We, we, we wanted to honor you and, and show our respect and our gratitude and our thanks. And so others know you much better than I and can say things much better, but I've, I've enjoyed knowing you very much. And I know you're not going away, but, you know, I, I want you to enjoy your retirement. I want you to actually have it, you know, and I don't want you to feel. But, but this, is, this is from our church. This is a gift. Uh, we want you and Cindy to have a wonderful weekend in Amish country together, and so I hope you enjoy that. And I love you. Love you, Pastor. Thanks, Cindy. I'm going to let John honor you at this time. Yes. For the NBC teams, we wanted to get him something special, but he told us not to. But. Um, they, did oh, sorry. I, they did what I always tell them not. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way it is with working with teens, isn't it? <laughs> but I've been with them for 24 years, since 1997. And I know for as long as I've been with them, it's been great. <laughs> well, it, it's hard not to. I mean, Ron made sure to tell us three major things in life. First one, Christ loves you no matter what. No matter what you have done, no matter what um, you could have done or will do, Christ still loves you no matter what. That was the main thing he wanted to tell each and every single person. He is the one who can only save you, only Jesus. He made sure to tell us that each and every single day. Knowing that, he made sure to show us his love each and every single day. Each team has come through. Um, NBC teens and also BYF since um, a lot of you know it's BYF we knew that we were loved no matter what we, you, you and Cindy made sure sorry you and Cindy made sure that we were loved each and every single day so we wanted to get you guys something special it's an old plaque for your retirement It's a, and with a little sailboat and everything And I made sure to put, with great love and gratitude, from NBC Teens slash BYF. And it has your last sermon on it for May 26, 2021 with us. So we just wanted to give this to you guys. You know, when you go to work, 
I think I saw a statistic. It said 95% of men and women who go to work hate their job. I said, my job has never been a job. It's been a joy. And it has been a joy to serve this church in particular. But when we were sitting down the other day thinking of all the different ministries that we've participated in, we find it utterly amazing how God gave us the opportunity to serve. And even to this day, I'm still amazed that he let me do this. Utterly amazed. And I want to thank all of you who have shown your love and your support through thick and thin. Okay. And I know what this church does for Jesus. And this guy here. These last three years, uh, this pulpit has represented Christ's love. Not that it did before, don't get me wrong. But I know, for a matter of fact, it's in good hands. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Mark chapter 6. Uh, there's a bulletin insert. If you don't have a Bible with you, that will have <clears throat> the text on it. When Jesus came to the earth to proclaim the gospel of God to Israel, he joined a very long line of prophets and messengers from God, but he didn't just join them in proclamation. But as God's agent of salvation, Jesus would suffer the same fate as all God's messengers in the world have suffered and will suffer, which is rejection and unbelief. In verse 4 of our text this morning, Jesus will identify his rejection at his hometown of Nazareth with the suffering role of all of God's prophets um, in the past. And just just a, a, a quick, very quick overview of that. In 1 Kings 18 and 19, Jezebel killed all the prophets of the Lord, tried to kill Elijah. Uh, for defeating the prophets of Baal. Micaiah was in prison for prophesying King Ahab's defeat in 1 Kings 22. Zechariah was stoned to death in 2 Chronicles 24. Jeremiah was threatened with death in Jeremiah 26, imprisoned in 37, thrown in a well in 38, deported to Egypt in 42 and 43, and all his prophecies were burned in 2 Chronicles 36. And it doesn't stop with God's messengers when we come to the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews describes those faithful witnesses to God's enduring promise who were stoned, who were sawn in two, who were put to death by the sword and went about destitute, persecuted, mistreated in the world just before being stoned to death. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen accused Israel's leaders of that very thing, of persecuting the prophets, murdering those who predicted the coming of the Messiah, and ultimately killing the Messiah, killing the righteous one himself, Jesus Christ. Remember the theme of Mark's story is that Jesus is the crucified king. It begs the question, why is Jesus so hated? Other people in the world, we know their names, there are good reasons to hate them, or at least we understand why people would hate them. But with Jesus, it doesn't make any logical sense. 
why he's so hated and why especially he would be murdered so brutally and unjustly. And it's not just out there in the world that we would consider immoral. It's everywhere. This rejection of Jesus. It's even among God's people. We even find it in the church. The word of Jesus is usually mostly rejected by human beings. Why is that such a common theme in the Bible, in the whole world? Not only will people kill you for preaching a message they don't want to hear, they'll reject you if they don't think you should be speaking it. And the dirty little secret that reveals about humankind is that we're all Pharisees. Every single last one of us. We will all find ourselves at some point among those who are rejecting Jesus. We're all filled with pride, with arrogance, with self-righteousness. Every single last one of us. Jesus responds instantly and with the full force of His grace and forgiveness and mercy and love when we have faith that He is who He says He is. He never turns us away when that is our posture. But He rejects those who respond to Him with pride. Jesus was rejected in His hometown of Nazareth because of the people's familiarity with Him. Jesus is offensive to those who refuse to see their need for His message. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank You this morning for Your perfect Word, Your Son Jesus Christ revealed on the pages of Scripture for us. Lord, may we find life in His Word. Give us life according to Your Word this morning for our souls cling to the dust. Father, help us hear. Guide how we hear Your Word. May we hear it properly, each and every one of us. Watch over me, God, as I speak. Keep me from intruding on this text with myself. Please overshadow me that I might preach Christ and Him crucified. Do the miracle that must take place in me for this to happen. God, I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read these six verses to you from Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So after the previous three beautiful episodes of faith and the power of Jesus in chapter 5 to save and to heal, to even raise the dead, Mark brings us crashing back down to earth with the rejection of Jesus by His people or by the people in His own hometown. We might think that those who knew Him would be the most excited, the most receptive, but it's just the opposite. And just as the series of miracles and the controversies earlier earlier in His Galilean ministry in 3, 1 to 6 that end with a statement of opposition, if you remember, and a plot to kill Jesus beginning to form, His later Galilean ministry in 3, 7 to 6, 13 
ends with a similar instance of opposition and rejection in our text this morning. Mark is framing that for us. He's contrasting faith and rejection. What does faith look like? What does rejection look like? Why is that there in chapters 5 and 6? And the biggest rejection Jesus faced, at least up to this point, comes from those who knew him most. And ultimately, of course, from all Israel itself in Jerusalem. We are learning the deadliness of misplaced expectations for the one who calls himself the Savior. And what sets chapters 5 and 6 at such odds with each other is that in one scene, what ties all those people together that need Jesus is desperation. God moves apparently in our desperation to carve out a place in our hearts for Jesus. If we don't see, when we read these stories, if we aren't seeing the physical needs, the physical desperation of those crying out for mercy from Jesus, begging Him, grabbing onto His robe, tearing up a roof earlier to let a friend down to see Him, if we don't see those things as pictures, deliberate pictures of our spiritual desperation inside each and every one of us, we are not primed to hear the words of Jesus. We'll come up with all kinds of reasons to reject Him unless and until we realize we are desperate. In one chapter, there's desperation, which seems to give way to faith. In this chapter, chapter 6, there's pride, which gives way to rejection. Beloved, Jesus divides. And He doesn't just divide between those who have faith and those who reject. That's very clear. He also divides between those who will submit to His Word and those who claim to know Him yet refuse to do so. So the message of the text this morning applies to believers as much as it does to unbelievers. For unbelievers, the question facing is, will you hear the message of Jesus to be your only hope for a Savior? For the believer, the question is, will you submit to the Word of Jesus for His church and its direction even when it's contemptible? To you. In verse 1, Jesus leaves Jairus' house. Remember, he raised his little girl, his 12-year-old daughter from the dead. Leaves his house, which was somewhere on the western shore of Galilee, probably. Uh, just where Jesus was. Travels to his hometown, which was Nazareth. About 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. Notice that Mark in his gospel doesn't mention any of the details of Jesus' birth. Just here you get this little blip that Nazareth was where he grew up. It was his hometown. Mark isn't interested at all, apparently, in his Davidic descent. That's not the crowd he's talking to. Apparently that didn't matter as much to a Gentile audience. Remember those Roman Christians down in the catacombs hiding a persecuted church, this Gentile church, Mark mainly is writing to. His disciples are still with him. They're mentioned here. They're in the background, but they'll figure more into the story as it goes along, but at this point, uh, I think Mark is mentioning them, letting you know they're still there so that we know Jesus has some family, right? There are some who do the will of God by listening to his word, as Jesus has identified in verse 2. Jewish custom allowed any qualified male to speak in the synagogue as long as the leaders invited him to do so. And you can imagine they did. Jesus' reputation by this point, along with him being a hometown boy, made this a very special opportunity And after hearing him speak, the people are responding to him. We see in the text with five questions here. Look at these questions. Notice that they're not denying how he can speak, the power of his words, the power he had. They're not denying any of those things. Notice that. 
they're astonished. Where did this man get these things? In the middle of verse 2. What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So obviously, they're extremely impressed with Jesus' teaching. Luke's version of this account, this is when Jesus reads from Isaiah, tells them it's been fulfilled in their hearing. He's the one that has come to set the captives free. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the oppressed. But they also don't know exactly what to make of him. They can't explain the source of his authority, the depth of his wisdom, or the depth of his power. After all, he was one of them. In Jesus' time, Nazareth was a very small Obscure village. It was only about 60 acres in size, uh, built on a rocky hillside. There were fewer than 500 people living there. Having grown up there, then imagine Jesus probably knew everybody in the town, and everybody in the town knew Jesus. They knew Jesus as a carpenter. The Greek word here is tecton, which, by the way, can mean carpenter or stonemason or anyone involved in crafting buildings. We get the word architect. From that word, which meant chief builder. So Jesus probably worked with both wood and stone. Builders in his day produced all kinds of things, right? From houses to cabinets, yokes for oxen, tables, all these things. In fact, interestingly, when Jesus was younger, Herod Antipas inherited a portion from his father, Herod the Great's kingdom, and became the Tetrarch of Galilee. He built a city to serve as the regional capital of Galilee that was just a few miles north of Nazareth, which means it's very possible that Jesus helped build the city of the man that would mock him during his trial and crucifixion in Luke 23. The point being, Jesus was known as a builder to these people, a worker, not a rabbi. But apparently, or or we we find here, not, not as a miracle worker, they knew his family They knew all of them as brothers and sisters, so we know now from texts like that that Mary and Joseph had more children after Jesus. But apparently, during his public ministry, his own brothers rejected him. His own brothers didn't believe in him. Now, they would, at least James would come along later in Acts, we find this, and his sisters are probably married to men at this point, but they're all there. They refer to him here only as the son of Mary, which is a little strange, but that's most likely because Joseph has long passed away by this time. Jesus is just identified now as the people know him as a part of Mary's family. If Joseph died when Jesus was very young, which he most likely did, Joseph is a very distant memory by this time, so he's the son of Mary. He's part of Mary's family. And now he's teaching in the synagogue like he's somebody, even though he didn't have the proper training, they assume. He's just a nothing but a common laborer. This man is no better than any one of us. And Mark says they took offense at him. They were offended by him. The word there is scandalizame. It comes over into English as the noun scandal. They were scandalized by Jesus. Scandalon was also the word used of a building stone that was rejected, interestingly enough, which is precisely what was being done to the chief cornerstone, the one on whom the church, God's new covenant people, would be built. He was considered flawed and repulsive and embarrassing by his contemporaries. They rejected his message. They rejected his authority. The implication for, or the implication of the reason of their rejection of Jesus is that this group refused to believe one from such humble and familiar origins could be God's agent for inaugurating 
the kingdom of God. They're offended. They're probably even a little jealous that this young laborer they used to know is acting with much greater authority than his family background and social status allow. All that he was doing, all that he was proclaiming, and they rejected it because they knew him when he was young. What's wrong with human beings? So in verse 4, Jesus borrowed an old semantic adage, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. This is the only place in Mark's gospel where Jesus is referred to as a prophet. And he gives the designation to himself in the context of his word and his authority and his message being rejected. But he's more than a prophet. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. But again, he's going to be treated like all prophets are, as though he's just another one of them. The same fate of all the prophets Jesus would suffer, but the worst fate of all really being cursed by dying on a tree. So it isn't just the crowds. It's not just the masses or the religious leaders of Israel that reject Jesus. It's even his hometown. It's his relatives. It's his own family, as we've seen. Why is Jesus such a scandal? Why is someone bringing something like eternal life and forgiveness and redemption and the gift of righteousness into the world that loves people, that cares for people, why are we rejecting Him? Look at 5 and 6 here. And He could do no mighty work there, except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. And He marveled because of their unbelief. And He went about among the villages teaching. Jesus has been performing miracles in Mark in response to faith. We've heard Him talk like this. But where there is no faith in Israel, He will not work. He will not do these things. Notice, however, there's a little sunlight there that despite this rejection by the many, the kingdom is still advancing as it always does. A few sick people were healed. It's very funny that he says it that way, like it's no big deal that these miraculous healings, a few things took place. A few amazing things were done, but, but that's it. But after all the marveling at Jesus so far in Mark... It's the faithlessness of his hometown that causes Jesus to be the one marveling, to be amazed in verse 6. Was he completely taken off guard by this? I, I don't think so. I doubt it. It's often hard to say how his humanity affected his divinity or vice versa in statements like this. But what appears to be the case is that Jesus is marveling at the fact that the people that should be the most happy to see him, the most happy to receive him, the most excited at his news that he has the power to do these things, one that knows them, they're the most resistant to it. So the fact that Jesus is rejected couldn't be any more of an astonishing thing when it comes to his hometown. Even there, even there that, that knew him, they don't want anything to do with him. They're offended by him. So it's not a neutral response. It's impossible to be neutral with Jesus. But it's not that. It's a completely hostile one. Luke talks about it, how they were going to kill him. And God delivered him, got him away. The Bible is asking us by implication, how in the world can these people lack faith in Jesus? Again, again, we, we always think, we always act like we know what the truth is when we see it. And if you proclaim it, we'll accept it and believe it. We always act like this. And so, therefore, we assume that if God just showed up in person and did things right in front of people and proved it, everybody would believe him. No, they won't. 
Not only will they not believe and be skeptical, they'll be hostile and oppose him and try to kill him. Why are, what is that all about? Why are we like this? We think, as believers, we think this. We think we feel so much better if God would just show up, sit down with us, whatever, talk with us, explain everything to us. The Bible never reads like that's the case. The Bible doesn't read like we are born neutral and whatever happens to us or whatever we become decides how we respond to God. That's not the case. The Bible does not read like we are blank slates. And if you just tell us what the truth is, we'll believe it. Right? It's, it's, it's impossible. The, the Bible talks about faith as though you must have it and it's impossible to have it. Therefore, it has to be a gift. Why does faith have to be a gift? You ever thought about that? Why can't we just hear? Why not make the obvious decision? Eternal life, eternal suffering. Who picks eternal suffering? Why would we reject Him? You can look right at Him. You can look right at what He's saying, right at what He's doing, and deny it. And not just deny it, but get mad and embarrassed and offended. You could have known Him. You could have grown up with Him. And still say, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Well, Tony, that's just human nature. Exactly. Exactly, beloved. That's just human nature. What is natural is to reject Jesus. What is supernatural is to believe Him. It's just human nature to be too proud to admit when you've met your superior. That's what human nature is. It didn't matter how great or how amazing or how powerful his word was to his old friends and family in Nazareth. The issue was that he had the gall to do all that when he was one of them. And for that, they'd lose their souls if they continued in their rejection. of him. Just for that. Just for that. I don't know who he thinks he is, right? That's their whole posture here. Do you know what the... You know how we say verse 4 as an English proverb? You would say familiarity breeds contempt. We know that phrase. We've probably all heard of that. Just, just think about that phrase for a minute. Familiarity breeds contempt. Absolutely. That makes, in one sense, if you do something or hear something or experience something over and over and over again, it would get old, right? If, if it, you know, being around the absence makes the heart grow fonder. Why? Well, because familiarity breeds contempt. Things get old. We even start to resent things that we once loved. But what if the problem is in us, not in what we resent? Now, that's clear in Nazareth, isn't it? Consider what Jesus is proclaiming. Consider what he's doing and ask yourself, who cares where he comes from? What bearing does that have on it? Who cares if you knew him when he was little? Who cares if you built a home with him or worked on a table with him? This man can save your soul and give you eternal life. All your sins can be washed away. This morning, this is true. All of your sins can be washed away. Literally, you can be made clean. As Luke's Gospel records, Jesus said the year of Jubilee has come. It's here. Come to me. 
I've come to set the captives free, free of charge. I'll do it. I'll bear the weight. I'll take the punishment. I'll give the righteousness. Just come to me. We are in those days. It was fulfilled. Today was and is the day of salvation. How did they respond? Yeah, whatever. I, I built a table with you. Right? You see the disconnect here? Beloved, they were seeing his works. He had a reputation. They knew what he said. They knew what he was doing. Their pride would not allow them to believe. To this day, how do people normally respond to Jesus, at least in the public square? Forgive me of my sins. Well, if God is all-powerful, can he build a rock he can't lift? Right? You ever, you ever heard that question before? To deny the existence of God? So the message of salvation comes, and those are the questions we're asking? Familiarity breeds contempt. In one sense, we're all Nazareth. Right? We could all say what they did. For us, maybe it would sound like this. Well, Jesus was just a man. He's just one of us, right? He's just a human being. He can't do these things. He's not telling the truth. And besides, there's a thousand religions in the world. There's all kinds of people that claim to be our Savior. Everyone has a Savior. We've heard the stories before. We're tired of hearing about salvation. We're tired of hearing about forgiveness and justification and eternal life. In fact, when that keeps getting offered, we'll start to get offended That that message assumes I'm so bad I need a Savior. And so it becomes nauseating to us. The more we hear it, the more tired of it we get. Not the more enamored with it we get. As time goes on, we don't see our need more. We come to believe we don't have one. It's a pipe dream, this salvation, this forgiveness. It's for the movies. Meanwhile, here Jesus stands in front of you and I, ready and willing to forgive cannot get out of our own way. That's the problem. Beloved, we need rescuing. Rescuing. doesn't matter if you've heard this a thousand times or you're hearing it for the first time. It's all true. It's all true. When we won't listen, when we put up a front, whatever it is, fear, worry, resentment, guilt. We, we, we think guilt is very pious. Guilt is very prideful at some point. At least when you have somebody saying they'll wash it all away and you think by clinging to it, you're taking your sin more seriously than Jesus did. Jesus is the one that bled for it, not you. Right? Guilt becomes, guilt may be required, it may be necessary. Right? If you're guilty, then you should feel guilty. But you should know that Jesus has come to wash it away. Why would that be offensive? We have to get underneath why we would reject that. Because we want to believe that people reject it because it's too hard to believe. It's too supernatural. I'm sure that has an element of it. Or or that's an element of it. I'm I'm sure to some degree how, you know, it's very hard to believe it, right, that there's a God and all these types of things. But at the end of the day, we're not really rejecting Jesus because we can't see him. I've never seen China. I'm pretty sure it's there. Right, so, so that's not really, you know, the essence of unbelief. But the message gets lost on us. Jesus is offensive to those who refuse to see their need 
for his message. They don't respond to him neutrally. It's offensive, right? It's offensive. Why is verse 4 true? Why do we have some version of that proverb in so many different languages and cultures? Because all human beings are too proud to admit they need a Savior or that they need someone else to tell them the truth. We say we just want the truth. That depends on who's speaking it. Right? That's how we determine what is true, whether or not we like the person talking. Normally. We won't hear truth from people we don't like. We won't accept truth from sources we don't trust. And in some sense, that's probably wise. Yes, but it's not always right. It's not categorically correct. We do not have within us the ability to always discern the truth. We need rest. When it comes to Jesus, we have zero ability to discern the truth. There are people who are gullible. There are people who are stubborn. You can't tell them anything. There's people you can tell them anything. Right? We, we, we are human beings. Something is wrong in here. That's what Israel's rejection is meant to show. That he came to his own people, John 1, and his own people didn't receive him. We can understand Asia not receiving him. How did Israel not receive him? Right? Beloved, that's an amazing thing to consider. How did the people that had the prophecies, had the law, saw all the miraculous things, knew the stories, how did they say, you're not from God? Let's kill him. You know, how does that all culminate? We have no king but Caesar. That, that, that's who you want to rule you? Caesar, you take that over God, over his son? Beloved, what is true is true no matter who it's coming from. Right? No matter who it's coming from. And nowhere is it more important to realize that than when it comes to Jesus and His message of salvation for you. Because we are even like this human when the one speaking is Jesus Christ Himself. The Bible gives several reasons for the unbelief of people and their rejection of Jesus. Here the reason is familiarity. That's one we might not have expected. Human beings are never pictured as capable and receptive, ever. In the Bible, we are so high and mighty, like someone has to be something special to tell us the truth, as though we already know it, right? We already are aware of it, we're immediately able to discern it. And so the one talking to us has to be higher than us or smarter than us or have the right papers in their, you know, office or whatever to be able to tell us the truth. And again, there are times when that is good, right? Your doctor is probably more reliable than Google, right? But like, like he's earned, hopefully, even if he got like a C average, I couldn't pull a C average in those classes. You don't want me being your doctor. So it's, at, at times, it makes sense. But the truth is the truth. We are not capable and receptive. Our minds, we think, are too advanced to accept truth from a mere carpenter, right? right we, we, we all do this. We all do this. You'd be much more willing to take life advice from a guy in a suit, you know, or a lawyer than you would like the guy pumping your gas when they used to do that, right? But that, that's, think about how culture is. You look down on people like that. 
We just, we just do. Look, they work at Burger King. So what? Right? I mean, I mean, it's not, you know, you don't want it to be, it's not a living wage. It's not a career, but maybe that's what they do. Right? But, but to us, like, I'm not going to take life advice from the guy at Burger King. Right? That's how we are. You know, you, you need to, and, and it's, it's, it comes off as humility. You know, like, like I need someone to teach me. Yeah, but when you pick them, that's pride. Right? When you decide who you'll accept truth from, what you're saying is, I know what it is. I'll determine whether or not you can tell it to me. That's even true when it comes to Jesus. This is a human problem. You can see what he's doing and say, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't buy it. I, I don't, why? Well, because I, I, we knew him when he was growing up. So because I knew him when he was growing up, he can't be who he says he is. There's something in us, beloved. It's, it's wrong. We talk as though the source of truth must come with credentials. But in actual fact, it doesn't matter who it comes from. We don't like truth. That's the issue here with Jesus. That's what's being revealed about humankind in Jesus. Beloved, remember this. Humankind fell in the garden. Way back in the Garden of Eden in the beginning when the only two people on earth were Adam and Eve. We fell there in their DNA because we were sure we knew better than God what was best for us. We are even like this when it comes to God. I know what you said, but I really want that piece of fruit off that tree. It looks good to me. I want to be wise. right? I, I, I want to create my own reality. I want to determine what truth is. So I'm going to eat that fruit. I'm going to gain that knowledge. We honestly think we know better than God what was best for us. And that was even the case with two people that did not have a sin nature. Think about this. Adam and Eve weren't conceived in sin. Adam and Eve were created from the dust by the hand of God, Eve from his side. No sin nature. How did they sin? Beloved, the gap that exists naturally between earth and heaven is too wide for us to span. We will even sin when it's not in our nature. What can such people do? Why would such people reject Jesus when he comes? You would think we would all know how badly we need a Savior. And apparently, we not only have no clue, we will reject Him when He comes and proclaims salvation to us. The smarter thing to do would be to say, you know what, I don't know, but that looks really good. I'll take it. That would be the better thing to do. It doesn't matter the words you use. Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. All I know today, the thief hanging beside Jesus is, I deserve this, you don't. I think you are who you say you are. Just remember me. Remember my name when you come into your kingdom. I tell you the truth today, Jesus says to the man, you will be with me in paradise. That's all it is. That's all it is. He's come to rescue us. And they're telling Jesus, you don't have any right to act like you know stuff. No, beloved, he's, he's come to rescue us. Just take his hand. And, and look, we're going to be rejected if we bear his name. That's the storyline. We're, we're telling a story the world has heard a thousand different times in a thousand different ways. They're going to roll their eyes at it and reject it. And 
We're telling a story about a human man who was also the son of God. Like that's Norse mythology or something. That's what that's for. What are you talking about? The people who watched what he did, heard him speak, they rejected him. And that's not a testament to his inability or his ineptitude or his poor, you know, convincing skills. It means even if God walks among us, we won't believe he's there. How dare anyone try to tell us that we need to get saved? And for the believer, the question is, how dare anyone, including Jesus, try to tell me how to run my church, how to run my life? Do you know for whom familiarity doesn't breed contempt? You ever thought about this? The same people that Jesus said, you need their faith. Children. What happens, what does a kid say when you throw them up in the air for the nine millionth time? In a row. Do it again. Do it again. I'm going to die if I do it again. Right? But you, the kid doesn't even, just do it. Yes! Do it again. Right? They love it. That's the kind of faith Jesus Christ calls us to have. He's not boring. Do it again. Do it again. Right? If, if, if the beauty of creation, the splendor of creation declares the glory of God, you know what the sun is, you know what God is saying to the sun every morning? Do it again. Do it again. If only we would be so enamored with Jesus to just believe Him like a child believes us. Like a child doesn't want us to stop making their life wonderful. Do it again. See, the difference between a child and an adult is that maybe the kid doesn't know yet that, you know, they're so brilliant that... Isn't it sad that you stop watching cartoons? And you stop enjoying roller coasters and all. That's so sad. It's such a tragedy, you know, because you get too old and too dignified for those things. If only God would give us eyes to actually see what we're beholding when we look at Jesus. If if we could see it, we wouldn't reject Him. We'd we'd want Him to take over. Right? We'd want Him to reign. We'd want Him to rule. We'd want him to have charge. If we just see him, then, then all the other stuff would. The thing about a big Jesus in your life, in your church, is that other stuff starts to look like what it is. And it's not as impressive as he is. That's what we need. We need this person, beloved. We need him as our savior. We need him as our shepherd. We need him as the head of our church. Beloved, just listen to him. Just Listen to him. Of course, he will always be offensive to us. We don't naturally love the truth. None of us does. Well, we all love the truth until it threatens my truth, right? But that's a universal problem. And Jesus is a universal Savior. He saves all who fall at his feet believing. Don't take offense at him. Don't take offense at him. The one that holds all the cards that could destroy you and be completely justified. We all know we're guilty. We all know we're going to face it. We all do. That's why we have so much fun talking like he's not there or we're above him. We all know we're going to face it. And beloved, Jesus has come to rescue us. Just listen to him. Just believe him.
Don't take offense at him. Not him. Not him. He's come to save you. He's come to save you. He's come to rule our church for our good and for his glory. And the best, smartest, wisest thing we can do is trust him and look to him.